Hello and welcome to the Small Talk podcast. This podcast aims to bring you the facts about topical issues in the UK and equip you with a better understanding of political, economic and societal issues. My name is Rasha and today we should be asking the question, does the media fuel terrorism? The perceived threat of terrorism has tripled over the last six years and Brits have come out top as the most worried about extremism in a study that involved 25 countries. There is a desperately increasing need to address the factors which lead individuals to commit such atrocities and the reoccurring question asking why these incidents occur draws a spectrum of conclusions. From extremist ideologies to foreign policy strategies to mental illnesses. And over the past decades, terrorism has become conflated with extremist Islamist terrorism. In 2016 alone, 13,488 incidents of terrorism around the world were recorded by the Global Terrorism Database. Of those incidents, the perpetrators of 709 of them were conducted by the main Islamist terrorist organisations. Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, the Taliban and ISIS accounted for 0.05% of terrorist incidents around the globe in 2016. Of those, an even smaller proportion related to incidents occurring in the West and in the UK. Now this is only observing one year, but the trends over the past few years show similar patterns. These numbers made me heavily question why we have such a distorted perception of the threat of extremist Islamist terrorism as a social issue in the UK. There are a number of things that affect the level of terrorism, both nationally and globally, but today we will be looking specifically at what role the media has to play in all of this. Observing how these events are documented and covered on television, in print and social media is hugely important. These sources are how we receive our information on current affairs and various factors from framing to language to journalistic choices and styles all have a drastic impact on how we react and the choices we make and opinions we hold as a result. The intrinsic purpose of terrorism is inherent in its name. It is to instil terror amongst a population. This leaves the media with a precarious balancing act of reporting tragic breaking news incidents without further perpetuating the fear instilled in the public with sensationalism. And it's with the latter that I find that it usually fails. The manner of which these incidents are reported can contribute significantly to fear-mongering. When looking at the way a terrorist attack that occurs in the UK and the West is covered, there seems to be a clear pattern. The evolved nature of how we consume our news in live and 24-hour format often means that we are made aware of situations despite there being very little actual information present. After reporting the initial incident, news outlets across the nation now enter a race to uncover as much detail regarding the incident as they can. Denzel Washington articulated this pretty well last year. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. We live in a society now where it's just first. Who cares? Get it out there. We don't care who it hurts. We don't care who we destroy. We don't care if it's true. Just say it. Sell it. So what a responsibility you all have to tell the truth, not just to be first. The coverage of recent attacks in the UK this year included detailed maps and timelines, the number of calls being made to the police released, the cost to the individuals of making the bombs, repeated images and videos of the scene replayed over and over again from multiple angles, every detail obtainable about the life of the perpetrators, images of the victims splashed on every newspaper cover. 
Each new piece of information being written as a new headline, generating more page views with a new supporting article and print media dedicating multiple pages to document the tragedies. After the Westminster attack in London, Channel 4 wrongly accused an individual of having been the perpetrator of an attack based on an image which was circulating Twitter of somebody who at that time was in prison. The rash decision to air such a crucial piece of information without fact-checking from a national broadcaster depicted just how eager media outlets are to be the first to relay new information after a terrorist attack. Following this, the general public are reassured by various ways that action is being taken. Cobra meetings are being held, threat levels increasing, armed police being deployed on the streets to reassure the public, implementing measures that curb immigration. It is all a bit scary, and one could argue that, in its aim of instilling terror and fear, the terrorist organisations certainly do achieve their goal. One of the consequences of sensationalised and prolonged coverage of terrorist attacks is primarily the free publicity it provides for the terrorist groups in question. That, combined with the fear-mongering, perpetuation of stereotypes and subsequent fueling of right-wing extremism, makes for a very problematic society and probably very happy terrorists. When Al-Qaeda's communication centres were seized in Fallujah in Iraq in 2003, a television studio was found. ISIS have become infamous for their emphasised usage of propaganda videos in recent years, and this shows that these groups are very aware of the power of the media and dedicate time to invest in it. We've seen ISIS claim responsibility for every act of terror that occurs, even when their actual involvement in orchestrating the attack is questionable. Attaching their name to every incident will in turn stipulate more media attention to them. It is an essential tool in their recruitment process to spread their message and to continue dividing communities, as the resurrection of extremist right-wing nationalism has affirmed. The global media response to acts of terrorism panda directly into the strategies that terrorist organisations have planned. Before 9-11, bin Laden struggled to propagate his ideologies to the masses. You cannot influence people or gain track if nobody knows who you are and if you are deemed too irrelevant for media organisations to report on your activities. But it isn't as if media outlets are incapable of a different style of reporting. The sensationalist responses are a distinctive choice. Western media has a notable difference when reporting incidents in the West versus incidents everywhere else. When a non-Western country is the target, there is a notable lack of empathy, and the formulaic manner in which necessary facts are reported is the norm. How many times have your eyes glazed over a tiny column stating that a car bomb in a foreign country has killed 12 people, and you've not felt a thing? When Western lives are affected, we see a great deal of empathy being directed towards the victims in a way which isn't replicated when reporting on non-Western lives. Some might say that this is perhaps because we have more empathy to incidents that are closer to home. However, when the images of Island Kurdi washed up on a beach went viral, a lot of people sympathised in a way that is atypical of a foreign life. Why was that? The way that information and incidents are presented to us can affect how much we care about those involved. Coverage of terrorist attacks that don't happen in the West have much less focus on the victims. Numbers overshadow names and stories in a manner which absolves the reader from building significant sympathy. A popularised argument is that terrorist attacks are less common in the West and therefore more newsworthy. However, this isn't really true. An article by The Nation states that at the time of the attacks in Paris in November, France had already experienced five terrorist attacks in 2015. Meanwhile, Lebanon had only had two, and yet one incident was written about 21,000 times and the other 1,200.
no surprises which. Similarly, in Bahrain, in Chad, in Bosnia, countries where terrorist attacks are not normalised, the global media coverage of attacks in those regions was scarce. This inherent bias within the British and Western media can manipulate to what extent we actually care about non-Western lives. The failure to build this empathy contributes to the devaluation of civilian lives in other countries on a wider basis. Public resistance to foreign policies which involve intervention where those lives might be collateral damage could be significantly lessened as a result, but that's probably for another podcast. The personalities who are given a platform through media outlets is also significant. Controversial personalities and flamboyant characters are favoured over academics and intellectuals since they bring with them audiences of both supporters and adversaries. But audiences nonetheless. Inflammatory statements make for more quotable soundbites after all. Why else would LBC's radio personalities include Majid Nawaz, Nigel Farage and now Owen Jones and until recently Katie Hopkins? all names who typically have the word controversial attached to their personalities. When such individuals with extremely opinionated and at times uninformed views are not challenged, there are severe repercussions on a community level outside of the media bubble. Ignoring the potential repercussions and failing to give the opposition platforms to individuals of calibre who are representative of a majority view can be to our own detriment. A prime example of this in action happened recently. One of the perpetrators of the London Bridge attacks was found to be a supporter of the currently incarcerated Anjum Chowdhury. Now let's talk a little bit about Anjum Chowdhury. This is somebody who, despite having no credentials or qualifications and being a known hate preacher, was consistently given a platform on British and international television and in print media. Whilst Muslims were preventing him from speaking at mosques, the media were voiding their actions by providing him with a platform to propagate his extreme views. Despite being highly unrepresentative of the majority of Muslims in the UK, Chowdhury was repeatedly invited wherever discussions and news outlets required a Muslim representative, to the extent that CNN had labelled him as leader of Islam in the UK. He became the only prominent Muslim speaker of the time that was given significant airtime on our television screens. As a Muslim watching him being called time and time again to debate and discuss on behalf of all Muslims was an excruciatingly painful and infuriating affair. However, to other susceptible and vulnerable young Muslims who were not able to access any other Muslim personality on mainstream media, he was the only person seen to be defending their religion on these shows. And as a catastrophic result, his ideologies were espoused by some. The platforms which propelled him into international media are arguably responsible for the rise and influence of an otherwise completely irrelevant and insignificant extremist. Failure to denounce the media responsibility, especially in this case, is a failure to pinpoint one of the grassroots causes of radicalisation. Media can also disproportionately shape people's perceptions of reality. In the UK, international terrorism is perceived as the biggest threat, with 77% of people polled in a survey naming it as the most serious issue. Yet also in the UK, 391 people died from starvation or malnutrition in 2015. Two women a week die at their hands of their partner. A hundred deaths a day are caused by alcohol. 12,000 air pollution deaths a year are directly attributable to road transport. Yet the headlines never reflect these statistics as a national crisis and do not respond in the same way as they do to a terrorist attack with multiple page spreads. 
The manner in which terrorist attacks are conveyed to the general public can have subsequent domino effects, which have several severe trajectories. Attacks on Muslims always increase significantly following a terrorist attack, up to 500% in some cases, and those are the underreported figures. Innocent, unimplicated civilians pay the price on a daily basis for the actions of terrorist groups which creates a secondary bubble of fear within an existing one. This leads to further ostracisation and alienation of Muslim communities. Looking at the demographic of those who are radicalised is also necessary. They are mostly young, second or third generation immigrants. A lot of them are people who are my age, in their early 20s or even younger, from the same religious background and being raised in similar communities to myself. Given the similar environmental settings, how are people's choices so radically different to mine? And in my opinion, it comes down to identity. My personal experience with identity has been a very confusing one. When you leave home for school, university and work, you're constantly being told your lifestyle and choices are strange, otherly and incompatible with the way that society works here. When you go back home, the same lifestyle and those same choices are criticised for being too liberalised and ignorant of culture and tradition. Trying to conflate the two can sometimes seem impossible, and you begin to lack a sense of belonging anywhere. The xenophobia that follows terrorist attacks can excavate this feeling amongst vulnerable young Muslims into believing that they truly do not belong and are not wanted here in the UK. This feeling is one which terrorist groups depend on for their recruitment drives, which they nurture and feed until they have become completely brainwashed into committing atrocities on a mass scale. So what's this got to do with the media? Well, xenophobic and anti-Muslim attacks are often perpetrated by those who have very little contact with actual Muslims in their everyday lives. So where do they develop their opinion and hatred, other than information presented to them in the media? The divisive language used in the media, the focus on audience sizes stirring controversy, the prioritisation of sensationalism over factual responsible reporting, the lack of representation and diversity in the higher echelons of companies producing the media content. I mean the agenda-setting and decision-making echelons. All of those have an irrefutable and significant impact on shaping the society we live in, and editorial choices have a direct impact on impressionable viewers. So perhaps it's time to prioritise lives over profit. All the sources used in this video are detailed in the description box. If you would like to share this podcast or have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. We are on all social media platforms, and if you would like to get in touch, please email us at hello at smalltalktv.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Small Talk podcast. Join us next time, and have a fabulous week.